Welcome back to part two of Exupery and Previt being stranded in the desert. We rejoin them on their second night. They have consumed all their liquids. They have just returned from a 40-mile reconnaissance in the desert, hoping for a way out, and those hopes have been dashed, and they have returned to the plain, hoping against hope that perhaps they have been spotted from the air. We had built up a great pyre out of bits of the splintered wing. Our gasoline was ready. We had flung on the heap sheets of metal whose magnesium coating would burn with a hard white flame. We were waiting now for night to come down before we lighted our conflagration. But where were there men to see it? Night fell and the flames rose. Prayerfully, we watched our mute and radiant fanion mount resplendent into the night. As I looked, I said to myself that this message was not only a cry for help, it was fraught also with a great deal of love. We were begging for water, but we were also begging for the communion of human society. Only man can create fire. Let another flame light up the night. Let man answer man. What could I do? What I could do, I have done. What we could do, we have done. Nearly forty miles, almost without a drop to drink. Now there was no water left. Was it our fault that we could wait no longer? But from the moment I breathed in the moist bottom of the tin cup, a clock had started up in me. From the second when I had sucked up the last drop, I had begun to slip downhill. Could I help it if time like a river was carrying me away? I am so made that I have to believe that everything is simple. Birth is simple. Growing up is simple, and dying of thirst is simple. There was still no sign that we were being sought, or rather they were doubtless hunting for us elsewhere, probably in Arabia. We were to hear no sound of a plane until the day after we had abandoned our own. And if ships did pass overhead, what could that mean to us? What could they see in us except two black dots among the thousand shadowy dots in the desert? When searchers have to cover 2,000 miles of territory, it takes them a good two weeks to spot a plane in the desert from the sky. They were probably looking for us all along the line from Tripoli to Persia, and still with all this, I clung to the slim chance that they might pick us out. Was that not the only chance of being saved? I changed my tactics, determining to go reconnoitering by myself— Previtt would get another bonfire together and kindle it in the event that visitors showed up, but we were to have no callers that day. So off I went without knowing whether or not I should have the stamina to come back. I remembered what I knew about this Libyan desert. When in the Sahara, humidity is still at 40% of saturation, it is only 18 here in Libya. Life here evaporates like a vapor. Bedouins, explorers, and colonial officers all tell us that a man may go nineteen hours without water. Thereafter his eyes fill with light, and that marks the beginning of the end. The progress made by thirst is swift and terrible. By this northeast wind, this abnormal wind that had blown us out of our course and had marooned us on this plateau, was now prolonging our lives. What was the length of the reprieve it would grant us before our eyes began to fill with light? I went forward with the feeling of a man canoeing in mid-ocean.
I will admit that at daybreak this landscape seemed to me less infernal, and that I began my walk with my hands in my pockets like a tramp on a high road. I went on, finally, and the time came when, along with my weariness, something in me began to change. If those were not mirages, I was inventing them. Hi, hi there. I shouted and waved my arms, but the man I had seen waving at me turned out to be a black rock. Everything in the desert had grown animate. I stooped to waken a sleeping Bedouin, and he turned into the trunk of a black tree. A tree trunk, here in the desert? I was amazed, and I bent over to lift a broken bough. It was solid as marble. Straightening up, I looked around and saw more black marble. An antediluvian forest littered the ground with broken treetops how many thousand years ago, under what hurricane of the time of Genesis had this cathedral of wood crumbled in this spot. Countless centuries had rolled these fragments of giant pillars at my feet, polished them like steel, petrified and vitrified them, and endued them with the color of jet. Since yesterday I had walked nearly fifty miles. This dizziness that I felt came doubtless from my thirst, or from the sun. It glittered on these hulks until they shone as if smeared with oil. It blazed down on this universal carapace. Sand and fox had no life here. This world was a gigantic anvil upon which the sun beat down. I strode across this anvil, and at my temples I could feel the hammer strokes of the sun. Hi, hi there, I called out. There is nothing there, I told myself. Take it easy, you're delirious. I had to talk to myself aloud, had to bring myself to reason. It was hard for me to reject what I was seeing, hard not to run towards the caravan, plodding on the horizon. There, there, do you see it? Fool, you know very well that you are inventing it. You mean that nothing in the world is real? Nothing in the world is real if that cross, which I see ten miles off on the top of a hill, is not real. Or is it a lighthouse? No, the sea does not lie in that direction. Then it must be a cross. I had spent the night studying my map, but uselessly, since I did not know my position. Still, I had scrutinized all the signs that marked the marvelous presence of man. And somewhere on the map, I had seen a little circle surmounted by such a cross. I had glanced down at the legend to get an explanation of the symbol, and had read Religious Institution. Close to the cross there had been a black dot. Again I had run my finger down the legend and had read Permanent Well. My heart had jumped, and I had repeated the legend aloud, Permanent Well, Permanent Well. What were all of the Alibaba's treasures compared with a permanent well? A little farther on were two white circles, temporary wells, the legend said. Not quite so exciting, and round about them was nothing, unless it was the blankness of despair. But this must be my religious institution. The monks must certainly have planted a great cross on the hill expressly for men in our plight. All I had to do was to walk across to them. I should be taken in by those learned Dominicans. They have a great cool kitchen with red tiles, and out in the courtyard a marvelous rusted pump. Beneath the rusted pump is dug the permanent well. What rejoicing when I ring at their gate when I get my hands on the rope of a great bell. Madman, you are describing a house in Providence, and what's more, the house has no bell. 
you know perfectly well that it is a mirage. The treasures of the West turned out to be mere illusion. Very good. I'll go back. I had been walking two hours when I saw the flames of the bonfire that Previtt frightened by my long absence had sent up. They mattered very little to me now. Another hour of trudging five hundred yards away, a hundred yards, fifty yards, good Lord. Amazement stopped me in my tracks. Joy surged up and filled my heart with its violence. In the firelight stood Previtt talking to two Arabs who were leaning against the motor. He had not noticed me, for he was too full of his own joy. If only I had sat still and waited with him, I should have been saved already. Exultantly I called out, Hi! Hi! And the two Bedouins gave a start and stared at me. Previtt left them standing and came forward to me. I opened my arms to him. He caught me by the elbow. Did he think I was keeling over? I said. At last, eh? What do you mean? The Arabs? What Arabs? Those Arabs there with you. Previtt looked at me queerly, and when he spoke I felt as if he was very reluctantly confiding a great secret. There are no Arabs here. This time I know. I am going to cry. The next day, east-northeast we tramped. If we had in fact crossed the Nile, each step was leading us deeper and deeper into the desert. I don't remember anything about that day. I remember only my haste. I was hurrying desperately towards something, towards some finality. I remember also that I walked with my eyes to the ground, for the mirages were more than I could bear. From time to time we would correct our course by the compass, and now and again we would lie down to catch our breath. I remember having flung away my waterproof, which I had held on to as covering for the night. That is as much as I recall about the day, of what happened. When the chill of evening came, I remember more. But during the day, I had simply turned to sand and was being without mind. When the sun set, we decided to make camp. Oh, I knew as well as anybody that we should push on, that this one waterless night would finish us off. But the sky in the north was cloudless. The wind no longer had the same taste on the lip. It had moved into another quarter. Something was rustling against us. But this time it seemed to be the desert itself. The wild beast was stalking us, had us in its power. I could feel its breath in my face, could feel it lick my face and hands. Suppose I walked on. At the best I could do five or six miles more, remember that in three days I had covered a hundred miles practically without water. The next day I scrambled to my feet. We're off, Previtt, I said. Our throats are still open. Let's get along, man. The wind that shrivels up a man in nineteen hours was now blowing out of the west. My gullet was not yet shut, but it was hard, and it was painful, and I could feel that there was a rasp in it. Soon, that cough would begin that I had been told about and was now expecting. My tongue was becoming a nuisance. But most serious of all, I was beginning to see shining spots before my eyes. When those spots changed into flames— I should simply lie down and die. The first morning hours were cool, and we took advantage of them to get on a good pace. We knew that once the sun was high, there would be no more walking for us. We no longer had the right to sweat, certainly not to stop and catch our breath. This coolness was merely the coolness of low humidity. The prevailing wind was coming from the desert, and under its soft and treacherous caress, the blood was being dried out of us. Our first day's nourishment had been a few grapes. 
In the next three days, each of us ate half an orange and a bit of cake. If we had had anything left now, we couldn't have eaten it because we had no saliva with which to masticate it. But I had stopped being hungry. Thirsty I was, yes, and it seemed to me that I was suffering less from thirst itself than from the effects of thirst. Gullet hard, tongue like plaster of Paris, a rasping in the throat, a horrible taste in the mouth. All these sensations were new to me, and though I believed water could rid me of them, nothing in my memory associated them with water. Thirst had become more and more a disease and less and less a craving. I began to realize that the thought of water and fruit was now less agonizing than it had been. I was forgetting the radiance of the orange, just as I was forgetting the eyes under the hat brim. Perhaps I was forgetting everything. We had sat down after all, but it could not be for long. Nevertheless, it was impossible to go five hundred yards without our legs giving way. To stretch out on the sand would be marvelous, but it could not be. The landscape had begun to change. Rocky places grew rarer, and the sand was now firm beneath our feet. A mile ahead stood dunes, and on those dunes we could see a scrubby vegetation, at least this sand was preferable to the steely surface over which we had been trudging. This was the Golden Desert. This might have been the Sahara. It was, in a sense, my country. Two hundred yards now became our limit, but we had determined to carry on until we reached the vegetation. Better than that we could not hope to do. A week later, when we went back over our traces in a car, I measured this last lap and found that it was short of fifty miles. All told, we had done 124 miles. The previous day I had tramped without hope. Today the word hope had grown meaningless. Today we were tramping simply because we were tramping. Probably oxen work for the same reason. Yesterday I had dreamed of a paradise of orange trees, and today I would not give a button for paradise. I did not believe oranges existed. When I thought about myself, I found in me nothing but a heart squeezed dry. I was tottering, emotionless. I felt no distress whatever, and in a way I regretted it. Misery would have seemed to me as sweet as water. I might then have felt sorry for myself and commiserated with myself as with a friend, but I had not a friend left on earth. Later, when we were rescued, seeing our burnt-out eyes, men thought we must have called aloud and wept and suffered, but cries of despair, misery, and sobbing grief are a kind of wealth, and we possess no wealth. When a young girl is disappointed in love, she weeps and knows sorrow. Sorrow is one of the vibrations that prove the fact of living. I felt no sorrow. I was the desert. I could no longer bring up a little saliva, neither could I any longer summon those moving visions toward which I should have loved to stretch forth arms, the sun had dried up the springs of tears in me. And yet, what was that? A ripple of hope went through me like a faint breeze over a lake. What was this sign that had wakened my instinct before knocking on the door of my consciousness? Nothing had changed, and yet everything was changed. The sheet of sand, those low hummocks, and the sparse tufts of verdure that had been a landscape were now becoming a stage setting— Thus far the stage was empty, but the scene was set. 
I looked at Previtt. The same astonishing thing had happened to him as to me, but he was as far from guessing its significance as I was. I swear to you that something is about to happen. I swear that life has sprung in this desert. I swear that this emptiness, this stillness, has suddenly become more stirring than a tumult on a public square. Privet. Footprints. Footprints. We are saved. We had wandered from the trail of the human species. We had cast ourselves forth from the tribe. We had found ourselves alone on earth and forgotten by the universal migration, and here, imprinted in the sand, were the divine and naked feet of men. Look, Previtt, here two men stood together and then separated. Here a camel knelt. But it was not true that we were already saved. It was not enough to squat down and wait. Before long, we should be past saving. Once the cough has begun, the progress made by thirst is swift. Still, I believed in that caravan swaying somewhere in the desert, heavy with its cargo of treasure. We went on. Suddenly, I heard a cock crow, and I remembered what Gillimet had told me. Towards the end, I heard cocks crowing in the Andes, and I heard the railway train... The instant the cock crowed, I thought of Gillimet, and I said to myself, First, it was my eyes that played tricks on me. I suppose this is another of the effects of thirst. Probably my ears have merely held out longer than my eyes. But Previtt grabbed my arm. Do you hear that? What? The cock? Why? Why, yes, I did. To myself, I said, Fool, get it through your head. This means life. I had one last hallucination, three dogs chasing one another. Previtt looked but could not see them. However, both of us waved our arms at a Bedouin. Both of us shouted with all our breath and our bodies and laughed for happiness, but our voices could not carry thirty yards. The Bedouin on his slow-moving camel had come into view from behind a dune, and now he was moving slowly out of sight. The man was probably the only Arab in this desert, sent by a demon to materialize and vanish before the eyes of those who could not run. We saw in profile on the dune another Arab. We shouted, but our shouts were whispers. We waved our arms, and it seemed to us that they must fill the sky with monstrous signals, and still the Bedouin stared with averted face away from us, and at last, slowly, slowly, he began a right-angle turn in our direction. At that very second, when he came face to face with us, I thought the curtain would come down. At that very second, when his eyes met ours, thirst would vanish, and by this man would death and the mirages be wiped out. Let this man but make a quarter turn left, and the world is changed. Let him but bring his torso round, but sweep the scene with a glance, and like a god, he can create life. The miracle had come to pass. He was walking toward us over the sand like a god over the waves. The Arab looked at us without a word. He placed his hand upon our shoulders, and we obeyed him. We stretched out upon the sand. Race, language, religion were forgotten. There was only this humble nomad with the hands of an archangel on our shoulders. Face to the sand, we waited, and when the water came, we drank like calves with our faces in the basin, and with a greediness which alarmed the Bedouin so that from time to time he pulled us back. But as soon as his hand fell away from us, we plunged our faces anew into the water. Water, thou hast no taste, no color, no odor, canst not be defined.' 
not necessary to life, but rather life itself, thou fillest us with a gratification that exceeds the delight of the senses. By thy might there return unto us treasures that we had abandoned. By thy grace there are released in us all the dried-up runnels of our heart, of the riches that exist in the world. Thou art the rarest and also the most delicate, thou so pure within the bowels of the earth. For thou, water, art a proud divinity, allowing no alteration, no foreignness in thy being, and the joy that thou spreadest is an infinitely simple joy. You, Bedouin of Libya, who saved our lives, though you will dwell forever in my memory, yet I shall never be able to recapture your features. You are humanity, and your face comes into my mind simply as man incarnate. You, our beloved fellow man, did not know who we might be, and yet you recognized us without fail, and I, in my turn, shall recognize you in the faces of all mankind. You came towards me in an aureole of charity and magnanimity, bearing the gift of water. All my friends and all my enemies marched towards me in your person. It did not seem to me that you were rescuing me. Rather, did it seem to me that you were forgiving me. And I felt I had no enemy left in all the world. This is the end of my story. Lifted onto a camel, we went on for three hours. Then, broken with weariness, we asked to be set down at a camp while the cameleers went on ahead for help. Towards six in the evening, a car manned by armed Bedouins came to fetch us. A half hour later, we were set down at the house of a Swiss engineer named Rokud, who was operating a soda factory beside saline deposits in the desert. He was unforgettably kind to us. By midnight, we were in Cairo. I awoke between white sheets. Through the curtains came the rays of a sun that was no longer an enemy. I spread butter and honey on my bread. I smiled. I recaptured the savor of my childhood and all its marvels. And I read and reread the telegram from those dearest to me in all the world, whose three words had shattered me. So terribly happy. <laughs>